What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Hello and welcome to the Brian Crombie Hour. My name is Brian Crombie and it's a pleasure for me to be here with you uh, talking for the next hour about politics. Generally, we're going to talk about politics, but we might all uh, also address a bunch of different issues over the course of the next uh, couple of broadcasts. Uh, if you know me at all, I've been very involved in a whole bunch of different things in Mississauga. I've been president of the Mississauga Arts Council. I'm currently chair of Transit Alliance, a civic advocacy organization in Toronto that's um, really working on spurring transit investment and transportation investment. I've been very involved in uh, business. I'm currently an executive with a sports company, so we might actually talk a little bit about sports at times. I'm currently doing my doctorate in business and talking social capital, so we'll probably talk about social capital and networking, community and wellness and a whole bunch of things like that. But Saga 960, what they really want me to focus on is politics and politics from a Maybe a liberal bent uh, because that's uh, the political party that I've been most involved in over the years. I started in uh, 1976, uh, probably before the vast majority of you were born. I was elected as Commissioner of Toronto District for the Ontario Young Liberals, if you can believe it. My very first campaign was in 1972. A uh, second cousin of mine was leader of the Liberal Party, Bob Nixon, former treasurer of uh, Ontario, former liberal of the liberal uh, leader in Ontario, uh, got me when I was 12 years old to come out and work for him on a political campaign when he ran for leader. It was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. And then actually before that, 1968, believe it or not, in Fairview Mall, Point Claire, um, Quebec, Montreal, I actually went to a speech uh, with uh, my elder brother to see Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And I was part of Trudeau Mania, if you can believe it. Um, I've been involved in uh, local municipal politics. My father, uh, David Crombie, ran for uh, school board trustee. A couple of times I was campaign manager in, uh, in Markham, Ontario. And then uh, there's been some other Crombies that have run for municipal politics and federal politics in, uh, in Mississauga. Uh, my kids have all been involved in politics. I've uh, been chair of the Mississauga Summit, the Western GTA Summit. So I think I've got a little bit of experience in politics and uh, and you might think a, a little bit to say over the years. And so I'm looking forward to chatting with some people and chatting with you over the course of this political campaign about what we see happening. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to have uh, different shows on different issues. But today we're going to uh, focus first of all on the big issue last week, which was the brown face, black face um, <coughs> issue that uh, was found out on Tuesday, Wednesday in regards to Justin Trudeau. Uh, and we're going to have a great uh, um, uh, guest, Saba Ahmed, who's a, uh, a lawyer and a, and a civic advocate and very involved in a whole bunch of, uh, of, of issues, both from a transit standpoint as well as women's rights and, uh, and uh, diversity, etc. Uh, and then we're going to turn in our second segment to Jonathan Scott, who's a, a liberal strategist and very involved in the Liberal Party. We're going to talk about the campaign from an overview standpoint to what's happening, where the polls are, where they think we're going to go. And then in our third segment, we're going to bring in Stephen Cox, 
who's a green strategist and a former liberal strategist and and probably one of the most uh, intelligent, uh, well-read, smartest guys I know who's going to talk about some of the issues uh, that are uh, foremost in this campaign. And then we're going to bring it all together at the end and have a panel uh, roundtable discussion. One of the things that uh, have uh, been my most uh, enjoyable parts of my career and life in the past has been family dinner table conversations. So we're, we're going to end up with a little bit of a dinner table conversation. We're all going to argue and debate and talk about the future. So that's what we're all about. But to start with, I'm going to introduce you to Saba Ahmed, uh, one of the most impressive lawyers that I've had the privilege of working in. Saba, you've been very vocal. Um, I guess that's not the right word, but you've been very uh, you've written a lot on Facebook in the last week in regards to uh, this blackface, brownface uh, issue. And I got to start by saying, you know, I never – I'm reasonably well read. I've never heard the terminology brownface until last week. Like is there a thing about brownface? I know blackface and blackface is an issue. But is there a thing about brownface? Uh, I, I don't specifically recall the phrase uh, brownface being used in the past, but I do remember being upset about – People putting on um, makeup to make themselves appear uh, darker in skin tone, particularly around Hollywood. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Hollywood would hire white actors to play brown parts, and they would use skin darkening makeup to uh, um, make it more convincing, so to speak. And, and uh, you know, that's been talked about in ethnic communities for a long time. So, if the term brownface had been used in connection with that, then I would say that you know maybe it had been. I'm not sure it was coined recently, but uh, I understood immediately what was meant when uh, when it was stated that he was wearing brownface. And I think most people did when they saw that picture uh, with him dressed up as Aladdin. Now, do you think the fact that he was dressed up at a masquerade party uh, as Aladdin with a turban and everything is different uh, than um, than than blackface. We're, we're, is this much ado about nothing, or is this a big issue? Um, well, I'm not going to say it was much ado about nothing. I, I do think that it's a lot more complicated than a lot of people who are talking about it seem to understand or appreciate. So, for example, the entire notion that it was a masquerade party, it wasn't a masquerade party, it was an Arabian Nights theme party. And for me, that's fraught. I, I think I would have found that concept offensive back in 2001, but I think I would have been um, rather alone in that feeling because I do remember being uh, – I'm roughly Justin Trudeau's age, a couple years younger, uh, and you know, it wouldn't have been um, – you know, broadly understood that that is a fraught concept in 2001. Um, I don't think people are having those kinds of Arabian Nights theme parties anymore uh, or, you know, to the extent that they did. It sounds kind of niche actually, right? But uh, they did it and I would have found it offensive at the time and I don't think very many people would have. Well, why? You know, Aladdin was a big Disney movie. A lot of the cartoons and memes that we've seen on the internet have been uh, pictures of of the Disney Aladdin cartoon character and, and superimposing Justin Trudeau's face. Why would an Arabian Nights theme party be offensive? Okay, that's kind of a hard question. So um, first of all, I, I get offended by a lot of things, right? So I see misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, racism everywhere I look. You know, like it's, it's not – this didn't necessarily move the needle – more than other things for me because I see it everywhere. Um, it's very normalized and, and what gets normalized you know, changes over time. So when the movie Aladdin came out, for example, I was offended. Like that Disney movie, I was offended by that movie. Nobody else was. You know, like, I thought the, it was a cute movie. Yeah. And, and Aladdin's uh, an inspirational character. 
Um, He'll but, show us the world. Yeah, well, I, I was taught about Aladdin uh, from my mother's uh, sister. I remember she told us the story. It was very different in her telling. And, uh, and, and it was a historical... Uh, I, I mean, it was just rooted in a tradition that is mine, right? And then Disney does it. And it, it's, uh, it's a blend of a lot of South Asian and Arabian, Ar- Arabian cultures. So which culture is it? So it's like... You know, it's like all the all, all the Middle Eastern cultures are interchangeable from the perspective of Disney. So that in itself is, um, you know, kind of offensive. Um, you know, it wasn't the first time that I'd seen that kind of thing happening. But so the lack of uh, of any appreciation that um, that there are many cultures in that region of the world uh, was part of what's offensive. Okay, but that's the the criticism of the Disney cartoon. What about Trudeau dressing up as Aladdin? And going to a masquerade, a lot uh, Arabian Nights theme party. Is that something that would be offensive today? Is that something that was offensive in two thousand and one? And if you have a picture of yourself in two thousand and one, is it damaging to his candidacy as prime minister today? Well, uh, okay, so. Let's think about what we mean when we say offensive. Offensive to whom, right? It's not like there's any capital T truth about that is actually offensive, right? It's it's how it is perceived by other people. And there's a lot of other people in the world. And, you know, someone like me, you know, just because I'm offended by something, I don't think it it, it should really be taken to heart by too many people because a lot of things do offend me. And, you know, I don't – I'm very forgiving. Like I, I, I understand other people's contexts and where they're coming from, you know. Uh, like Charles Darwin, for example, when you read his works, um, you can look at it through present day lens and be offended because he wrote about, for example, the Tierra del Fuegans and he thought they were a brutal people. And, uh, you know, it sounds kind of racist when you read it um, today. today. But if you know history, if you love history as I do, and you try to put yourself into the context that is Charles Darwin, you actually see that he's a very broad minded person who was actually able to uh, see a number of things. Um, so you're willing to forgive Justin Trudeau? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, so you're, I, you're you're a woman of color. You're from South Asia. Um, what did that you think the people from your culture in Canada today are going to respond? Well, I don't think I'm representative of people from my culture. Okay. I, I mean, first of all, my culture is a dual culture. I I you know was raised in the West and. Uh, you know, I my attachments vary, right? So um, uh, I think a lot of um, South Asian people wouldn't even consider that offensive. They would consider it. Uh, um, um, well, there's two Sikh gentlemen that are in one of the pictures that have come out publicly, I think, and said that they didn't find it offensive at all, that they were having a good time. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between um, – when people talk about cultural pro- appropriation, it, it's not the same from all cultures and from all people. Like, like you know, it, it's not like uh, if you're First Nation and someone dresses up um, in feathers and, and calls themselves, uh, you know, a chief. Um, and and it, it just seems very mocking as compared to, um, you know, I gave a lot of my white friends South Asian clothes and asked them to wear those clothes to my events and I felt. And is that wrong or? Well, no. I thought it was wonderful that they were wearing. So I go clothes. to uh, iftar dinners. I've go. I've gone to and been invited to, to numerous different uh, ethnic events in Mississauga, and uh, my Hindu yeah. friends, my Muslim friends, are proud to give me their their local garments and have me come wearing them. Yeah, and I think how you acquire the ethnic clothes is part of 
what determines whether or not you offend people, right? So if it's a costume that you make yourself, that's one thing as compared to, um, you know, it's, uh, it was a gift and I'm going to a wedding and, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to be like the Romans in Rome. But yeah. you're not actually in Rome. You're just in an Indian wedding in Canada maybe. But so what's your assessment? Do you think this is going to cost Justin Trudeau votes? Yeah, I think it might. Um, it might also gain him some votes. Um, you know, we're we're going through a change where what was not offensive now is offensive, and for older people to now have their memories tainted by you know the present day lens, it's it's very difficult. And so he, a lot of people have sympathized, but um, I think it has asked us to say, you know, well, what is his record on? Multiculturalism and uh, diversity. It, what do you think it, of it? Has it been good? It's excellent. I, I think it's very difficult to do better than Justin Trudeau <laughs> has. I think uh, the First Nations, um, a lot of my First Nations friends would disagree on particular issues. And I think the record there is obviously mixed, but I, I'm of the view that progress is slow. And, um, you know, he hasn't been in power for all that long. And, uh, and that we've been moving in the correct dis- direction, particularly when it comes to equity, diversity issues. So here we have a prime minister who's probably got one of the best records on multiculturalism and diversity and inclusion, taking diversity that next step and in including people. And he's certainly done it in uh, Choices for Cabinet. Um, he's traveled around the world and worn local garb. And now we find out that uh, 18 years ago he dressed in blackface, brownface, and before that uh, in uh, blackface. Um, should we judge him by what he's done the last four years or by what he did 18 and 20 and 25 years ago? I don't judge him based on what he did 18 years ago, mostly because, well, so Mr. I, I think Sheer, I know Mr. him a little better. Mr. Shear is and some people in the media are. Are they overstepping their bounds? Are they uh, making way too much of this? They're not judging him in his total context, right? Because what I see is he was a drama kid. Like, I mean, he was 29, so he wasn't – I mean, you know, we theater folks, like I, I do have a little bit of a history in theater. We get ourselves into a lot of trouble because we do things um, like, you know, you know, work in theater and, and movies. And, you know, my brother um, was an actor and a lot of actors that I know have done things, taken roles. And, you know, from the present day lens, it doesn't look so great. Um, like when you put on an Indian accent to be a uh, to be a um, uh, an extra in a Disney movie. I know. So a friend of mine last week on Facebook posted that when he was in grade twelve in high school in the talent show, he put black uh, um, makeup on and a wig and was pretending to be Gladys Knight's and the Pips, and they did a song. And he went farther. He put he dressed in drag and he had you know put on body parts that would be female body parts. Uh, Etc. And he apologized, and he said that today he is embarrassed by it, and he apologized to all of uh, his friends in high school for that. But at that time, it was just a talent show when he was dressed up as a black woman, Gladys Knight in the Pits, singing a disco song. Mm-hmm. And and I think when you're when you're making those apologies, are you thinking about the people that you offended and how you might have made them feel? Because if you have that concept, if that's your if that's what you're asking yourself, if that's, if that's what's making you apologize, then you're on the right track. And just take that same rationale and apply it to your behavior today. So I actually think this is potentially helpful in that regard that I think a lot of us are going to look back 
at what we've done in the past and wonder about some of the things that we may have done in the past that uh, that we wouldn't do today. And so actually, I think that this process can be really helpful as we uh, as we think back. I uh, dressed up as a as a female uh, as a female bride actually uh, in a fake wedding at one point in time and uh, accentuated some of the female body parts and and the female who played the groom accentuated some of the male parts at the same time and it was a joke. Uh, I think many of us are going to think that uh, about that uh, and some of our past. So that was a great first conversation about what was the big topic of the week. We're going to come back after the break and talk about uh, the campaign and look at it from an overall standpoint. So, Sabah, thank you very much. And we're going to come back. We're going to introduce you to liberal strategist Jonathan Scott. Stay with us. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back. This is Brian Crombie, and we're on the Brian Crombie Hour talking uh, politics, the, the federal election that's on right now. Uh, and we've just had a fascinating conversation about the issue that was the big issue last week, uh, blackface, brownface. And we'll come back and talk about that when we get to the dinner table, uh, roundtable conversation in a couple of minutes. But what I want to do right now is introduce you to Jonathan Scott, who's a uh, very smart guy, liberal strategist, been involved in a bunch of political campaigns, is on the radio and TV talking about politics on a very frequent basis. And and Jonathan, what I'd like you to do, if I could, is is let's look at the campaign sort of uh, big brush. Let's, uh, you know, we're going to have a bunch of different uh, sessions on uh, on the campaign as it goes forward. But uh, take us back 10 days, uh, if you could, and think about where the polls were and what you were expecting uh, to happen during the campaign and what the big issues you thought were going to be when we started out. Right. Well, I think it was the Seinfeld campaign that was a lot to do about nothing. And a lot of it felt kind of baked in. Uh, Trudeau should be reelected. In this country, we tend to reelect our first-term governments. And uh, the distinction was that he had SNC-Lavalin to contend with to start the year. But it felt like uh, the Liberal Brain Trust kicked into gear in August, and Scheer was on the back foot over that uh, video of him comparing gay marriage to a dog's tail. And so the liberals were coming into the race with a little bit more uh, mojo back, and it seemed to have reverted to the mean. Trudeau was going to have to grind it out, and I joked that it it felt like it was going to be liberals in six, like a hockey series. Uh, You might lose a few, but you'd win in the end. 
And then uh, the brown face and black face controversy, I think, uh, was a body blow to the liberal leader's brand. And the question is going to be whether it has a ripple effect within the campaign or whether it was a uh, a road bump, uh, to be a little cross about it. But my sense is it, it remains a conservative liberal dogfight. So do you uh, predict uh, today a minority government? I predicted that in January, but yes, I will. And it doesn't change. So, uh, sorry, so you predicted in January before SNC. Yeah, I, I think. Um, and so you don't think it changed to something different after the SNC uh, scandal slash issue? I, I thought it was always going to be somewhere between the precipice of a majority minority situation for the Liberals. SNC made it more likely to be a minority. The Liberals had a better start to the campaign, and that came grinding to a screeching halt when these photos and videos of the Prime Minister came out. So, I, I think it it feels like somebody is on track to win a minority uh, at this point. The Liberals probably have the better option of getting into that majority territory, but this uh, this controversy has really been a huge roadblock that uh, really stalled the momentum I thought they had coming out of the first week. Okay, let me let me elevate you for a second. So. In the Western world, maybe even more than the Western world, we've had this huge trend to populism. We've Donald Trump in the United States, uh, um, you know, populists in Poland and Hungary, uh, uh, Putin in Russia, um, Doug Ford in in Ontario. Um, why didn't we have that trend uh, to the conservative strongly uh, in opposition to the sort of the middle centrist uh, effort uh, in in Canada? Well, we've had some of it, but I think the conservatives had the option of choosing the populist Maxime Bernier, and instead they picked this milk toast former insurance salesman from Saskatoon who I don't know what Andrew Shear's greatest accomplishment is in life other than getting up every morning. Wasn't he the youngest speaker of the house? That's a pretty big accomplishment. I mean, I suppose if if being the speaker of a conservative majority government who did what Peter Van Loan and Stephen Harper told him to do every morning is an accomplishment. And then that's he's the second speaker in Westminster parliamentary history to ever go on to be a party leader. And the last guy did it during the Napoleonic Wars. So that's just a little bizarre to begin with. Um, he is a weird foil for Justin Trudeau. I mean, liberals uh, get defensive about the prime minister and conservatives think he's a drama teacher who was born into the prime minister's office and is unqualified to be there. Well, Andrew Scheer is less qualified than Justin Trudeau and doesn't have the charisma or any of the, uh, shall we say, the appearance-based charm. He just seems to be the boring dad next door. So he's not a populist because he's frankly, not much of anything. He's running on some Stephen Harper-style tax cuts, redux, and uh, I think he wanted a bland campaign. Uh, this is a country that uh, had its most successful premier under the slogan, bland works, and I think that was Trudeau's attempt to contrast. Justin Trudeau was maybe uh, too big for his britches, and we have tall poppy syndrome in this country, and Shear's approach was to say, I'm little Cut Mr. Down. Reliable. Yeah. So if you take a look at the last federal election, uh, the NDP were in first place, the Conservatives in second, and Justin Trudeau was in third place until the leadership debate uh, at the middle of the campaign. And uh, I, I think what happened during that campaign is that uh, the, the Conservatives did too good of a job in lowering expectations, telling people that uh, Justin Trudeau was just not ready. They had billboards uh, you know, all over and advertisements all over. They lowered expectations for Justin Trudeau so far that when he actually performed extremely well – in the leadership debate on TV, frankly, some people thinking he won uh, handily that debate, particularly against such an experienced debater as Stephen Harper. The liberal vote shot to first place and never, never lost first place thereafter for the rest of the campaign. And lots of people have also said the other mistake that Harper made was that the campaign was so long that it allowed Justin Trudeau the time to, uh, to prove that. 
when you compare Andrew Scheer to Stephen Harper, you don't clearly have as an experienced, as you pointed out, uh, campaigner. Um, you don't have as an experienced leader. And you don't have uh, the someone that's going to be able to go up against Justin Trudeau in a debate nearly as, as well as Stephen Harper. So did the Conservatives make a mistake? Should they have gone with Maxime Bernier or Stephen Harper? I mean, far be it for me to give them advice, but I think you're absolutely right. Stephen Harper was tough. He he was a son of a gun, and you either loved him or hated him, but he was tough, and he was, frankly, something of a statesman, uh, especially by his final term. I think you're right. It was an election based around anybody but Harper for a majority of the country, and Justin Trudeau won the so-called progressive primary. He was more appealing. He was a better anti-Harper. I don't see Andrew Scheer being able to hold much of a candle to Justin Trudeau, which is why uh, its advantage liberals and self-inflicted wounds might be what uh, makes this a, a, a more of a fair fight for Scheer. Uh, with Trudeau, I mean, the interesting irony is this controversy might be the expectation lower that he needs to come into the debates and actually prove himself again to be someone who Canadians are sympathetic to. I think there is tall poppy syndrome in this country, but we also love a good apology. And if the guy acts and feels like he's been humbled, people might be prepared to give him a second chance. Was that apology authentic enough and uh, and and comprehensive enough? I thought the first one on the plane, I mean, I, I don't know why they put him out on the plane when he was on the tarmac. I would have done a proper media scrum. But uh, I liked when he kept saying I'm pissed off at himself or I'm pissed off at myself. He seemed almost masochistic. He was so angry at his younger self. And I thought there was some genuineness to that. The The next day, his apology, maybe it was just because it had more buzzwords. It almost felt like he was blaming his privilege rather than owning that as a guy who is privileged, I, I, I thought made he made. I thought he made a real big mistake the next day. Yeah. Uh, and that was when people uh, were talking to him about, uh, you know, when the green light process took place and, and you had to tell the Liberal Party about things in your past. Why hadn't you uh, told them about right. uh, about this blackface, brownface uh, issue? And um, and he didn't say that he didn't remember it. Uh, what he said was, I was embarrassed by it, so I didn't tell them. That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't sound right from a he should have told them perspective, but it, I, I can believe it. There's things in my past I wouldn't want to cop to even if I was going through a vetting process. Uh, but I think the lesson is do it because – owning up to your mistakes and being humble is the best way through them. Uh, I thought his bigger mistake was around uh, almost acting like he was a victim of privilege rather than someone who benefited from privilege and made mistakes as a younger man. The one thing I thought was brilliant, whoever on the liberal campaign had him go glad-handing through the streets first, he he seems to be one of those extroverts who actually physically draws energy in from people. And he was – I watched that live and he – started tepidly and like he was almost nervous and by the time he realized that people were still coming to give him a hug and take a selfie you could see it like actually cause him to stand up taller and smile more so by the time he did the press conference with a crowd that was applauding him it it really felt like here's this guy who for some alchemy of reasons this country treats as if he's our you know royal son and heir and people seem to rally around him so whoever had that idea it was brilliant. It might have been cynical and it certainly drove conservatives nuts, but it seemed to work. So let's come back to this uh, question asked about uh, the last election and uh, whether Justin Trudeau was ready for prime time effectively, which was what Stephen Harper was arguing he wasn't. Um, does this whole brown face, black fish, uh, black face issue 
raise that judgment question again and say, you know, this gentleman just doesn't have the judgment to be prime, prime minister. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Absolutely for some people, this is proof positive that he was never serious, that he was always a bit of a drama queen, that he was always in over his head. For other people, it actually shows here's a guy who's governed relatively competently for the past four years. The economy's good. Uh, he, he shares my values. He represents us well on the world stage. Uh, and he did some boneheaded things in his 20s. So I, I think it's a double-edged sword. The biggest problem he'll have is if Canadians decide this is something that he should be embarrassed about in his past or whether it's something we should be embarrassed by as a country. I think that's a really good point. That's a really interesting point. And, and you know, the fact that I've had several friends on Facebook cop to things they had done in high school. Yeah. And uh, I just admitted to you dressing up as a I had a quote-unquote Cowboys and Indian birthday. I think I was seven or eight at the time, so it might be more my mom's fault than mine. But I remember wearing a headdress and war paint as a child. So are we going to be talking about this on uh, on October the 15th? And, uh, and is, are the pundits going to be talking about this on the evening of October 21st? I think it's part of who Trudeau is now. It's uh, – it's, you either think he's a hypocrite or you think he's someone who's learned and evolved, but it's part of who he is. And uh, he's no longer the progressive internet's boyfriend without warts. But um, that might make him more human, and in a country that has tall poppy syndrome, that might be a blessing in disguise. Tall poppy syndrome. We want to cut them all down to uh, size. That's an interesting uh, interesting analogy. Well, that, Jonathan, was a fascinating discussion of, uh, of both the blackface, brownface issue as well as uh, the campaign in overall. We're now going to take a break and after the break we're going to come back with Stephen Cox where we're going to talk about some of the specific policy issues that uh, both have been addressed and will be addressed during the election campaign. So stay with us and come back with Stephen in a couple minutes. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. This is Brian Crombie, and we're back at the Brian Crombie Hour on Saga 960. We're talking uh, politics. We're talking about the federal election. And I'd now like to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Stephen Cox. Uh, Stephen has been a liberal strategist in the past and a, uh, is currently a green strategist and uh, one of the smartest guys that I've uh, ever met on politics and, uh, and economics generally. And Stephen, I wonder if we could talk about some of the, the issues that you see as being uh, forefront. We've obviously talked about some of the topical things, uh, blackface, brownface. We've talked about some of the polls uh, with, uh, with Jonathan. But what do you think the key issues are, the key policies that both the parties are going to be focused on and, more importantly, that Canadians are going to be interested in in the next uh, month? For several uh, months, I've been saying to people that I think the election could 
very easily hinge on the climate crisis. Uh, the climate crisis uh, over the last year has been growing and in people's minds as not just a Canadian issue, but as a global issue and an issue in which governments across the world have been kicking the can and not taking the serious actions that are required to um, not only take efforts to reverse it, reverse climate change, but also uh, making meaningful uh, investments and changes to help people cope with it uh, and to change their lives to um, deal with the coming climate emergencies that are inevitable. Now, it hasn't been so far much of an issue in the campaign. And just this week, we've seen in New York the UN summit on, uh, on climate change. And we've seen this uh, um, Scandinavian uh, teenager that seems to have captured the world's imagination, both at Davos with her speech and then her speech uh, at the UN. Is that going to change things? Can the Canadians pay attention to what's happening in New York and, and change their, their consciousness and their attitude toward how important climate change is, do you think? It may. It may draw more attention to the issue just by virtue of media coverage. But from what I've seen in the polls, uh, the desire of people to have something that, uh, meaningfully done about climate change tends to be in response to climate crisis across the world, uh, especially climate crisis in Canada. Uh, we did have some uh, signs of that in the spring with the forest fires in Alberta with the extensive flooding in parts of Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba. Uh, but all of those uh, crises within Canada have abated, and we don't really have um, serious ongoing consequences from, from those floods and from those fires. But that's not to say that we might not have some fall uh, special in terms of hurricanes, uh, tornadoes, uh, things that can come up in this season and that could be quite devastating. So you think it's primarily Canadian climate issues that are going to change people's concern, not necessarily anything about the UN summit. What about uh, Naomi Klein and uh, this effort in the United States uh, with, uh, I think it's called the Green New Deal, and it's, it's, it's patterned after FDR's New Deal. And it's really quite a aggressive uh, plan for climate change. And, and uh, and Naomi Klein, who's been who's related to some of the the leaders of the NDP in the past, and who's been very involved in in very left wing NDP policies, is no longer supporting the NDP and is actually supporting uh, some Green candidates and some NDP candidates. Could that have an impact on the the election? It could. It's um, one of those uh, emerging movements that you see bubbling up in some of the ridings across Canada, uh, but it's n by no means uniform. Uh, there's been Green New Deal Canada meetings in uh, places like BC, in Barrie, Ontario, um, in Toronto, Danforth, that have been very large and very well attended. Uh, the Green New Deal Canada is a collaboration between uh, climate activists, environmentalists, organized labor, academia, and its, its leadership is uh, people like Naomi Klein, uh, Avi Lewis, her husband, uh, and uh, David Suzuki, who was one of the founders when they launched the Green New, De Green New Deal Canada initiative back in the spring. That said, a majority of Canadian premiers are out there actively lobbying against uh, any kind of carbon tax, any kind of climate change uh, initiatives. 
You've got uh, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, actively uh, suggesting that the carbon tax is going to be a job killer. Uh, do, do people in Canada really care about the climate or do they care about jobs and taxes? They care about the climate when it's in crisis or when there's an emergency. But when there isn't, uh, it does tend to slide down. The concerns are not uh, nearly as top of mind. And uh, people start to get concerned about affordability issues, uh, pocketbook issues, the cost of gas. Okay, so um, let's talk about the pocketbook issue here for a second, SNC-Lavalin. SNC-Lavalin could either be a ethics slash corruption issue um, if you're on one side of the issue or it could be a pocketbook issue fighting for jobs in Quebec. How do you think the SNC-Lavalin issue is going to play in this election? Interesting. I, 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 I agree with you. I think it's a, there's a regional difference uh, and it is a Quebec versus the rest of Canada in terms of how, they, how people view the issue as voters. I've never got a sense that the anger around it is strong in the rest of Canada. Uh, there are some people uh, that are very angry about it. But they tend to be people who are inside politics that are the most uh, upset about it or people in the media. And if you were to ask uh, people at the doorstep, uh, when you talk to them, it, it doesn't come up uh, as, a, as a primary issue for how people driving how people will vote. So this week, um, big issue announced by both the NDP and the Liberals is Pharmacare. And uh, as you know, I've been involved in the healthcare business, uh, pharmaceutical business. The percentage of our dollars in the healthcare system that have been spent on pharmaceuticals have gone from 15% to 50%. And so we uh, pride ourselves in Canada about being one of the most progressive healthcare systems. We actually are the second most privatized healthcare system in the G7, um, where, uh, where most other countries will have some pharmacare. Some of the countries like Britain and France, et cetera, will cover dental care and eye care and a whole bunch of other things, where all we care is – all we cover really is sick care, hospital care and, and, and doctor care. Um, so there is probably a justification for pharmacare, but it's unbelievably expensive. Do you think Canadians are going to be motivated by these announcements uh, this week about pharmacare? Uh, I think they will be. I think that there's a, a, a large uh, part of the population that do not have coverage of pharmaceuticals and uh, uh, are really, really pinched by the uh, ongoing increase in new pharmaceuticals coming on the market, the, new, the, the price increases. One, one doctor you know, told me that when a new pill comes on the market, it's, it's at least $1,000 a pill. You know, that, that's, that's the price of innovating in that particular market and, uh, and coming up with something new. So I think that, the, that it is a, 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 an issue uh, that is of concern to a significant seg segment of voters. The difficulty is that almost all the parties have an answer. Uh, as you said, the Liberals and the NDP came out with a pharmacare proposal uh, in, the, in the past week or putting flesh onto a pharmacare proposal. The Greens did uh, gave their proposal a month ago. Um, may, it may not have been as well covered or as well understood by, by voters, but it was put out there. Uh, I'm not aware that the Conservatives have come out with one, but the Conservatives will probably have some answer to um, uh, the, the rising price of pharmaceuticals that Canadians are paying. Right. So we've talked about uh, um, SNC-Lavalin. We've talked about the environment or climate change. We've talked about pharmacare. Uh, what do you think the other big policy issues that are uh, going to come up in this election campaign? 
I, I think that there's a, a, a growing issue around um, uh, what, what some people call extinction rebellion. Uh, and there's a growing what? movement. Extinction <laughs> rebellion. Ex- what the heck is rebellion? extinction rebellion? Extinction rebellion is um, uh, people who are concerned about the disappearance of species of uh, of wildlife, uh, disappearance of species of of crops and trees that are disappearing forever. And some of some of this is caused by uh, the climate crisis. Uh, but in some cases, it's also being caused by um, aggressive uh, corporate uh, intrusions with mining, with um, uh, extraction uh, policies, and uh, it's there's you know when you, when you when you lose the the bees, uh, people uh, people will will follow soon because the bees are so essential to our agriculture. And they've been fighting a real struggle um, in terms of survivability okay. over the last 20 years. Okay. Interesting. We haven't talked pipelines. What do you think about pipelines? Is that going to be an issue? You know, we've had probably one of the biggest nationalizations in the history of Canada with uh, Trudeau's purchase of, uh, of a pipeline, a uh, pipeline that is obviously opposed by the Green Party, opposed by numerous different uh, First Nations Aboriginal groups. Um, and uh, even Alberta, surprisingly enough, isn't uh, strongly in favor of it uh, as it uh, tries to move uh, bitumen to the to the ocean. Is was that a good decision? And it will be an it will it be an issue in this election? I think it is an issue. Um, it just happens to be pocketed in certain regions of the country. Uh, um, it is a huge issue in uh, parts of British Columbia. Uh, that are along tidewater. Uh, so all of Vancouver Island, it is a huge issue. Uh, Vancouver, um, Burnaby, um, and some of the other communities that are along the coast, a huge issue. Uh, but when you get into other parts of the country where it might be seen as a jobs issue, uh, there is more support for um, uh, the pipeline. And in yet other parts of the country where people are just looking at it in terms of the gov- the federal government overstepping into into provincial territory or into provincial rights, and they support the pipeline uh, for that reason that they're against uh, uh, too much uh, in- interference uh, by the federal government in provincial affairs, even though they're not really for the pipeline. Let, let me let me raise one last issue before we go to break, and that is debt deficit taxes. Uh, Shear's making a big issue on that. Uh, as you know, I'm a fiscal conservative, even though I'm a progressive, uh, social, a social progressive. Um, the economy is doing spectacular. Um, you know, unemployment at a historic low, interest rates at a historic low, GDP growing reasonably well, um, and yet we've, we're running massive deficits. Is this going to be an issue? I think so. Uh, the one thing that I, I, I don't want to sing the song too much of the Green Party, but one of the things that is a, a, a real... Um, virtue of the Green Party is they do not propose uh, any change in legislation or any promise without fully costing how they'll pay for it. So, so even Greens are fiscal conservatives. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we, uh, we've had Sabah Ahmed uh, talking about uh, brownface, blackface. We've had Jonathan Scott talking about the campaign and uh, the overall uh, horse race. And we've had Stephen Cox talking about some of the issues. Uh, We're going to come back after break with the whole panel all coming back, and we're going to talk about what we're going to expect in the next month. So don't go away. We're going to be back in a minute with uh, the whole panel.
Stream us live at Saga960AM.ca. My name is Brian Crombie, and we're here with the Crombie Hour, or the Brian Crombie Hour, talking politics, uh, primarily Mississauga, but but across Canada, obviously. And uh, we've had a fascinating uh, show today with Saba Ahmed uh, talking about the brown face, uh, black face uh, controversy in the last week. Uh, Jonathan Scott, who set the campaign in perspective, and Stephen Cox, who's uh, really dove in deep on some of the issues that are, are going to be material for the next ten minutes or so. Um, I just want to talk about uh, all the issues altogether as a panel. One of the things that I prided myself on uh, and really loved in my background is uh, my dinner table conversations. It was one of the things that I did as a, a family that was wonderful. On Sunday nights, we'd always invite different people over to the table. We'd get them to talk and we'd get some controversy and we'd have some discussion about what different people thought. So that's what we're going to pretend we're doing, okay? Just we, We've got some red wine in front of us and some, some good food and we're going to chat a little bit. So the first topic I'd like to talk about, uh, Jonathan, maybe I can ask you, is when is the leadership debate and is it do you think going to be as material this election as it was clearly in the last election it's right before thanksgiving uh, the english and french debates i think uh i don't know it's going to be interesting i think it depends on whether the liberal campaign uh kind of <coughs> regains its footing that was lost uh last week with the blackface controversy and if if things revert to the mean where it looks like trudeau is um, on track to be reelected, maybe with a reduced majority or even a minority, everyone's going to come out swinging at him and it's going to turn into a debate about Trudeau the man. Uh, if we're still in more of a horse race between the Liberals and Conservatives, I think it might actually be less of a mudslinging exercise <coughs> between the two frontrunners and more of actually uh, a policy debate. There are some real differences between the four or five parties who will be represented on stage and uh, I- I'm kind of fascinated to see the dynamic between uh, not just Trudeau, Trudeau and Scheer, because I think Trudeau's a known quality. Scheer, I think, is pretty lackluster. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, can Jagmeet Singh inject himself in? Can Elizabeth May So let's talk about Jagmeet Singh for a second. Because so I think that, uh, as we talked about earlier, one of the things that happened in the last election is that Tarper and the Conservatives had lowered expectations on Justin Trudeau dramatically, right. such that he, when he did well, people were surprised how he did well. I wonder if the same risk has has occurred with Jagmeet Singh. People have lowered expectations so much for him. And frankly, I was very impressed with his job uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. So I'll, I'll just say I, I think it's similar, but I don't think people have lowered expectations on him. I think people still just don't know who the man is, uh, almost to the point of it being like slightly comedic that people are going to be wondering, who's this man in a turban? Because he doesn't have much of a national profile and – in a perverse way, I think he got his first real entry to Canadian public consciousness over the the brownface controversy, where I thought he was very eloquent uh, the first time he had to address it. So it'll be interesting to see him in the mix. I think Elizabeth May and Max Bernier are also going to be uh, real kind of standout players because Elizabeth May's quirky and has her way in these debates, and she's the most experienced. And Mad Max Bernier is a right wing nut job. So it'll be interesting. Stephen, <laughs> maybe I could ask you. Wait, wait. I'm not going to use Jonathan's uh, description of him, but uh, <laughs> but clearly an extreme right-wing individual who's been anti-immigrant, uh, anti-multiculturalism, uh, um, almost libertarian in his attitudes. And I was surprised when uh, the election commission said that he had a, a had a seat at the table for this leadership debate. How do you think that's going to change things? 
I think uh, Maxine, uh, Maxime Bernier is going to go into the debate, and every time he talks, he is going to try to push a hot button. And he has about five hot buttons that he's been talking about as he goes across the country, and he will just find a way to slide his hot button aces into the conversation or into the debate. Um, this got to be a real negative to the conservatives and Andrew Scheer. It could be. It could be. Um, and it could also be really... Uh, very polarizing or very populist in raising some of the issues that his party feels are not being raised sufficiently. I got to tell you, I have meet, met Maxime Bernier several times, and the last time I met him was at a hockey game. Uh, he was walking through the concourse. He's got magnetism. He's got charisma, and and people were 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 drawn to him and wanted to shake his hand and talk to him. And so you may not agree with his his points, Jonathan, but the guy's got charisma. Uh, I I've never met him. I've just uh, seen relatively little of him on on television. Most of what I saw of him was when he was running for the conservative leadership. Uh, since then, he's been relatively uh, anonymous. Uh, you don't see him very often in our media. And uh, I, most of my memory is is uh, memory carried from the leadership, the leadership. Uh, against uh, against. But I, I think he'll he is inherently a better foil to Trudeau than. Mr. Milktoast Shear is. Yeah. And, and so I think in some ways the conservatives might have picked the wrong leader. Um, Maxine Bernier has gone off the deep end since losing the leadership. I think he presents well, it's a like really – like the federal conservatives stuck with Patrick Brown when they had a chance to go to Doug Ford. Like well, the, I, the comparables between I, I what think, the progressive conservatives did in, in Ontario where they had uh, the, the centrist sure. uh, um, Patrick Brown and, and like Andrew Shear, But they went to Doug Ford and Doug Ford won a majority government. I don't even know if Shear's a centrist. It's kind of like picking Joe Clark over Brian Mulroney. Uh, history re doesn't repeat but it rhymes kind of thing. But I think Shear has the opportunity to maybe put Bernier in his place and say, I'm the reasonable conservative on stage. And I don't know if that will play in this conservative party to your point where it's led by Doug Ford, not uh, – the incarnation of a moderate Patrick Brown as opposed to the fire breather he was in Ottawa. So, so we'll see. Sabin, maybe I can ask you about uh, about uh, the NDP leader um, who um, who people have said they didn't even know. And uh, I thought Jagmeet came out very powerfully uh, last week um, and uh, and really spoke and tried to speak to uh, to young ethnic Canadians and 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 said, you know, don't feel like you're excluded. Feel like you're part of Canada. Was that authentic? And did that play and will it win votes? Well, I, I think it's really hard to call any any comments by candidates who are uh, uh, running for election uh, authentic. I mean, it was it was agenda driven. And, and I thought his comments were a little bit maudlin. Um, you know, as I said, there's a lot of things to be offended about. And so, you know, uh, definitely true. A lot of what he said, I, I thought Nahid Nenshi's uh, article, the one that I think I saw that you posted, that was a little bit more square on. Um, but no, I mean, look, I, I totally agreed with the comment that he said that, you know, what do think about the kids that are hurting? Um, and from that perspective, we have to see uh, these things. But it is it is really a shame. We have three parties, at least, that are, um, you know, paying attention to things like facts and human equality. And then you have a couple of parties uh, that are, are not. And so... It's uh, it's a little bit depressing. When, I've, I've, uh, I've been a little bit surprised that some independents, Judy Wilson-Raybould, um, and uh, and the former health minister, um, that that they haven't had more press. You know, SNC Lavalin uh, and that issue, the resignations from cabinet or the oustings from cabinet, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, that played big time in the spring, but we haven't heard from them during uh, this campaign very much. 
Well, I disagreed with some of the other comments that I heard. Like I, I heard, uh, Steve, you said that v- voters, when you go to the door, they're not thinking about SNC-Lavalin. I think that that controversy definitely took uh, a, a major hit for, for Justin Trudeau and his brand, to use your terminology, John. Um, but, uh, you know, it was. I, I think it's a very complicated issue. And, um, you know, my own take on it also seems to be exceptional. Nobody <laughs> nobody seems to agree with me on that either, except for lawyers in hushed tones in hallways. But, uh, you know, um, not in the media so much. You don't really hear much people um, talking about it from that perspective. But uh, Jonathan, where is this election going to be decided? It's uh, a great question. I think that, I mean, the trite answer is to say into the 905 of Ontario. But I actually think it's going to be decided more along the margins in places like does Andrew Shear pick up seats in the south of New Brunswick that Harper had? Uh, does Trudeau hold his own and maybe even grow in Quebec? Does somebody like Sandra Pupatello put Windsor into the Liberal camp for the first time in a generation? I, my sense is the 905 plus or minus is going to stay close to what it is, maybe a few conservative inroads, but the Liberals have these little pockets like <coughs> Windsor, these little pockets like uh, parts of Quebec where – they can make up ground for seats that they might lose either in the 905 or out west. So I think it's going to be a bit more of a game of inches than people think. So I think it's going to be decided in the 905. And I think that's why Saga 960 can really – and this show uh, can really play potentially a big role because I really think that if you take a look at Mississauga and Brampton – should have me up better Brampton, for that. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> but it, no, if you think about uh, Mississauga and Brampton – uh, you know, four years ago, it went majority, not not majority, it went completely uh, liberal um, uh, with the Trudeau uh, landslide. Uh, the four years before that, um, um, Ignatieff uh, uh, went down to a massive defeat and it went uh, majority, if not every single seat, I think all but one, um, went uh, conservative. And before that, uh, with uh, Dion, it was a split. So when you have a minority government, Mississauga and Brampton are split. When you have majority government conservative, it goes all conservative. When you have majority government liberal, it goes all uh, goes all uh, liberal. And so I think that with your assessment that it's going to be a minority um, government, and frankly, I would have thought it was going to be minority conservative back uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and now I'm I, I agree with you. I'm leaning more majority uh, sorry minority liberal. Um, I think it's going to be interesting that there's going to be a couple of uh, races that are really tight in Mississauga and Brampton. And uh, and I think the 905 generally could decide the election. And I think the statistic often is that the local candidate produces 5 to maybe 7 percent of, uh, of, uh, of the election and uh, election result. And that 5 to 7 percent in a landslide is not material. But when it's a tight minority election, I think it ends up being critically important. And so I think that the races in, in Mississauga and Brampton are going to be really interesting. And what I'm hoping uh, that we do in, in subsequent shows is we bring some of the candidates from Mississauga and Brampton and some other people from Mississauga and Brampton into the, uh, into the studio and really talk to them about some of the, the local issues here. But if I could, just to finish it up, uh, I really think that the last election, the ballot box question – was Justin Trudeau and was he ready to be prime minister? And what Stephen Harper and the conservatives tried to do up until the leadership debate is tell everyone he wasn't ready. And during the uh, leadership debate, Justin Trudeau won it, I believe, and he proved to people that he was ready. And frankly, it was a repeat of the boxing match, where again, in the boxing matches, you may remember all of the pundits were saying that uh, he was a sissy and he wasn't going to win. And then he just pounded, uh, who was it, uh, Patrick? Uh, Brosseau. Brosseau, thank you, to, uh, to smithereens and had the uh, technical knockout. And so I think he won the boxing debate. 
when expectations were low. And I think he won the leadership debate when uh, expectations are low. And so I think that this is also, again, going to be a ballot box question on Justin Trudeau. And I think with a great economy, other than SNC-Lavalin, but I think on SNC-Lavalin, it was all about you know fighting for jobs. And so I think the vast majority of people actually supported his effort to save jobs. I think this brown-faced blackfish issue could actually be the thing that changes things. And people once again start questioning uh, whether he uh, is ready. And, and, you know, you commented about Drama Queen. I don't think that's the right description. But I can't tell you how many people told me, yeah, but 29, he was a drama teacher. And reminding people when you talk about experience that he was a drama teacher is uh, is a reminder that he was a drama teacher. And maybe that's not necessarily the best uh, resume to get you elected as Prime Minister of Canada. So I think the Prime Minister sold insurance for a few weeks, yeah. Anyway, and, and I have to tell you, the person with the most experience is probably Elizabeth May. That's and true. so, you know, she could be a game-changer in the election campaign as well. Anyway, so my name is Brian Crombie. Uh, this has been the uh, Brian Crombie Hour. We've been talking politics. Uh, we're going to hopefully have some more sessions where we talk politics and economics and uh, climate change and arts and culture and health and wellness and a whole bunch of other things. So stay tuned to Saga 960 and the Brian Crombie Hour. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Stream us live at Saga960AM.ca. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.